This is The Guardian. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Joni Grieve, in for Jonathan Friedland. COP26 in Glasgow is two weeks away, and already things are not looking great for Joe Biden or his climate agenda. Biden wants to push through his reconciliation bill, which would include what is widely considered the most comprehensive climate agenda ever put forward in the U.S. But it's not just Republicans causing Biden trouble. Once again, it's a member of the president's own party. There's a wide agreement that we need to address climate change, but less agreement on how, how fast and and at what cost. In my view, the only way to do it is without sacrificing reliability and affordability is with policies that spur innovation, not elimination. Senator Joe Manchin, the Democrat from West Virginia, is thinking primarily about his state, which is historically very reliant on the fossil fuel industry. He is staunchly opposed to a significant clean energy provision within the reconciliation bill, and he doesn't appear to be budging. With the October 31st deadline fast approaching to compromise and get this deal over the finish line, progressives are outraged that the climate provisions they consider to be vital might be watered down to appease just one senator. So what is the Biden administration going to do? And with only a couple of weeks left before arguably the last chance for world leaders to commit to fixing the climate crisis, has the U.S. failed before even having a chance to begin? To get some answers, I spoke to Oliver Millman, The Guardian's environment reporter in the U.S. I started by asking Oliver how exactly Biden's reconciliation bill was meant to tackle the climate crisis. This uh, reconciliation bill has been called the biggest climate bill of all time in the U.S. Certainly, it's certainly the most comprehensive. You've got measures that touch almost every area of U.S. life to drive down emissions. There's a program to phase out fossil fuels from the electricity grid. There's billions and billions of dollars for home energy retrofits. There's a tax credit scheme for electric vehicles uh, up to about $12,500. There's a program to decarbonize federal buildings and vehicle fleets to turn school buses to electric school buses, green finance, uh, money for solar and wind. It will be kind of a fundamental piece of Biden's ambitions to actually cut U.S. emissions in half this decade and help stave off the worst impacts of the climate crisis. So if Biden is able to get this through, how much of an impact would it have on the environment? 
do climate activists consider those proposals sufficient to tackle the crisis that we're facing? Nothing's really sufficient at this stage, unfortunately, uh, Joni. We were kind of very late in the game uh, with not much action taken. So uh, scientists have already wa- warned the irreversible uh, impacts from climate change already locked in. Whatever we do from this stage um, is all about uh, ensuring it doesn't get that much worse. So uh, in terms of in terms of getting to what Biden has set out, what scientists have set out too, which is to get to net zero emissions by 2050, this bill would get the US um, well on the way to that. It will cut about a billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, according to analysts, which would, uh, wouldn't would take uh, the US up to a halfway cut by 2030, but get it a good way there. And with some other kind of federal action, action by states, action by businesses, there are kind of some confident uh, analysts out there who would say, well, this 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 kind of gets um, gets the US to, to where it kind of needs to be. So this is a kind of rare opportunity for climate legislation in the US. It doesn't happen very often. So if this bill is passed, as, as was originally um, constructed, um, the US would be uh, well on its way to cutting emissions um, by the required amount. And we've talked on this podcast before about how one of the Democrats' biggest hurdles to getting things done is actually one of their own members, the moderate Senator Joe Manchin. He's once again being vocal on his opposition to a Biden bill. The outlet Politico actually dubbed Manchin the Reconciliation Grim Reaper. So what issues does Manchin have with the Reconciliation Bill, specifically when it comes to its climate provisions? Right. So overall, he he kind of considers the bill to be too large, $3.5 trillion initially set out. He, He says that is reckless. The same goes for the climate provisions. He feels there's too much money being spent on on climate, his, his kind of main argument is that money is being spent on doing things that would happen anyway. So the US is transforming itself kind of slowly away from fossil fuels. Coal is in decline. Uh, renewable energy such as solar and wind is on the rise. The response to that from environmentalists and scientists is to point out, well, we're not moving anywhere near fast enough. I mean, the decarbonisation underway in the US is is moving far too slowly to avoid catastrophic climate change and um, kind of vigorous government action is needed in order to get the US to where it needs to be. So are there specific parts of the reconciliation bill that Manchin has said he wants taken out? And does he want anything added in place of certain initiatives? So yeah, Manchin's main uh, bugbear is something called the Clean Electricity Performance Programme, which is essentially a scheme of um, payments and fines that would force utilities to phase in renewable energy over the next decade or so and phase out coal and oil and gas as a as a source of um, energy for American home and businesses. He comes from a state, of course, West Virginia, which relies heavily still on coal as a source of power. Also, traditionally, coal mining has formed the backbone of West Virginia's economy. So he isn't prepared to go forward with a bill, really, that would sign the death warrant of the coal mining industry in the US. There was some hope of compromise over this, but it looks like that hope has now been extinguished. (laughs) 
So, Oliver, as you mentioned, West Virginia has historically relied a lot on the fossil fuel industry. But climate change is also already having a massive impact on Mansion State, particularly in terms of flooding. In West Virginia, at least 20 people are now confirmed dead in a catastrophic flood disaster, the worst in 100 years. At this hour, 500... And data shows that Mansion's constituents stand to suffer disproportionately as climate change intensifies. So is there some kind of cognitive dissonance going on here? Why is he fighting something that could help his voters? Yeah, it's a really good question. I feel that that kind of cognitive dissonance is going on all across the country and perhaps the world. West Virginia's image uh, as, as a kind of cold heartland is, is on the wane. Uh, I think only 3% of the population now is of West Virginia is employed by coal mining. It once kind of ran the state, really. It provided revenues for, for whole towns, for school districts and so on. That's very much on the decline as, as coal. Uh, I feel that's, that's going to be kind of a key question to actually resolving this impasse is how you, how you help the people in uh, those fossil fuel industries and help build a new economy for them. So Manchin founded a family coal brokerage firm that paid him half a million dollars in dividends last year. Have there been any suggestions that personal gain may be influencing his decisions here? Uh, there certainly have, yes. Um, there's quite a few groups and, and some Democrats who said, well, why are you invested so heavily in fossil fuels? Um, like you say, this coal brokerage firm that he, he started that now is run by his son, Joseph, is still a, even though he's not. Uh, technically a hands-on operator of this business, Manchin still um, receives uh, a vast amount of sum from it. Financially, he's he's got something like uh, $5 million in dividend payments from this company over the last 10 years. It it provides about 70% of his uh, investment income. So yeah, I think there's there's some serious questions raised about conflicts of interest and, and whether lawmakers in the US should really hold stocks in, in any company that they maybe seeking to regulate. That's a, that's a kind of broader question for US politics that's um, raged for some time now. So, Oliver, has anyone ever asked Manchin about his potential personal stake in this issue? And if so, how has he responded? Yeah, so there have been some kind of shouted questions to uh, Manchin at Congress about this that he's kind of shut down. I think the most recent one, he just told the reporter to ask their next question. So he's not something he's not prepared to engage in. I think he's been his office has been clear though that um, Manchin is is looking out for the best interests of uh, West Virginia, uh, the people who live and work there. Um, that his own kind of financial ties are irrelevant. They certainly don't see that as a as a live issue or, or one they really want to engage with. I mean, certainly when I put questions to them for the story we did on this, uh, there was no response to to that. So uh, this is not something he wants to entertain or. Or really get into it's it's safe to say. Obviously, Manchin has been a major player in these negotiations over the reconciliation bill. Can you tell us a little bit about why his tactics are provoking so much fury among progressive Democrats? Yeah, I mean, I think the the frustration comes from the fact that progressives are so close and yet so far. I mean, it's kind of rare to have the opportunity to have control of the White House and Congress, uh, both houses of Congress at the same time. I mean, the Democrats last tried and failed to craft climate legislation under Obama over a decade ago now. They failed then. They kind of see the urgency and the seriousness of the problem in terms of the climate crisis only escalated since then. So they feel the kind of time is running out. The clock is ticking both politically and scientifically on this. So to have 
just Joe Manchin and 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 perhaps uh, Kirsten Cinema too on their own side um, holding up this legislation is a source of great frustration to them. They feel they've compromised already that the bill would have been much larger if they had their way. So they feel they've compromised already to get down to three point five trillion dollars for it to be cut further, scaled back further. They feel is is just too much that um, it won't actually properly address the problem of cutting emissions. And we know that Senator Manchin is a real outlier among Democratic lawmakers when it comes to climate policy. I think it's fair to say that the vast majority of Democrats in Congress would like to see some kind of real action taken on climate change. So why does Manchin have so much power in these negotiations? The U.S. Senate, as it's currently composed, is split evenly between Republicans and Democrats, 50-50 on each side. And so Democrats can only pass budget reconciliation bills like this with a with a bare majority, which is broken by Kamala Harris, the vice president, she'd be the deciding vote. So if every Democrat votes in favour, Harris comes in and breaks the deadlock. So that's why Manchin holds such power. He He's needed in, in, in this vote and, and others um, in order to, to get to that um, deadlock breaking stage. And so as probably the most conservative member of the party in the Senate, um, he holds a great deal of power. He he can kind of dictate terms. He's also the chair of the um, energy uh, committee, so he he helps craft what what goes into the legislation when it comes to the clean electricity scheme. So he holds enormous power, and it's it's kind of led to quite a lot of frustration amongst progressives because, like you say, the overwhelming majority of Democrats want something done. It's only one or two holdouts that uh, stand in their way and they're in their own party. So, Oliver, Senator Manchin is understandably getting most of the criticism for this, but he's actually not the only Democrat playing hardball here. Senator Kirsten Sinema has been considerably less vocal about what her issues are with the reconciliation bill, but she is just as adamant that the cost of the legislation has to come down. So what can you tell us about her role in all of this? Yeah, I mean, Sinema is a really interesting political figure, isn't she? I mean, she she started off in the Green Party. She started as a kind of um, very left wing uh, kind of activist, agitated for action on climate change, um, was very upset about income inequality. She's changed quite considerably, it seems, since she became a senator for Arizona. Um, she's kind of shifted uh, far more to the right. She's a very interesting kind of figure. It's still unclear exactly what she wants, really, what, she, what her priorities would be. Uh, what her objections are. She's quite a kind of mysterious figure in in, in many respects. Her kind of um, vote is still very much in, up in the air. It's still kind of un- unclear exactly where she will land on this. We know that the negotiations over the reconciliation bill are still ongoing, but overall, what does Joe Biden risk if he drops the climate provisions in the package in order to appease Manchin? So he risks angering the progressives in his party. He risks alienating, I think, a large chunk of the Democratic base, particularly younger voters who see climate change now as a number one, number two issue for the country. They really want action on climate change. Um, If they see Biden, who's promised so much on this, who's called it an existential threat, who said it's kind of a code red situation, we need to do something now. If you can't follow through with anything on on that after such um, high hopes were raised 
I think that's going to lead to um, a lot of kind of bitter recrimination within within the party. And Oliver, all of this is, of course, happening in the run up to COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference. Joe Biden, his special envoy for climate, John Kerry, and even Barack Obama are due to land in Glasgow in less than two weeks. So if Democrats can't reach a deal on the reconciliation package, is there a risk of Joe Biden looking weak on climate policy just as he arrives for this pivotal conference? That is a real risk. And I think uh, a lot of the fate of the talks will hinge upon what the U.S. manages to do domestically. I think a lot of other countries are looking very closely at that. I think a lot of the negotiators are, are kind of going to be basing their uh, positions based on what what the U.S. can do to an extent. And it will uh, certainly dampen the U.S. re-entry to the climate uh, negotiations world. I mean, of course, Donald Trump removed uh, the U.S. from the Paris Climate Agreement. This, uh, this was meant to be Joe Biden's big uh, re-emergence, um, reinstating the U.S. at the top of the tree when it comes to action on climate change, leading the world towards a safer, a safer climate. So if he arrives in Glasgow without any policy in place to drive down emissions uh, within the US, I think other nations will, will look at that very sceptically. I think it will seriously undermine Biden if uh, this isn't done. And John Kerry, his climate envoy, has admitted as such, saying that um, if they fail to make this legislation happen, then that would be pretty much as bad as as, as when Trump pulled the US out of the Paris Climate Agreement. So, yeah, it would be a, a serious blow. And what is John Kerry's sort of best case scenario from Glasgow? It seems like he has pretty high expectations for the event. Is that right? Yeah, he has. I mean, he certainly talked up its importance, said it's the last uh, best chance of, of a deal on, on climate. It stressed the urgency of, of, of the moment that um, time is slipping away. I think more recently, though, he's he's tried to temper expectations by saying, well, there's probably going to be some gaps. We're not going to get to exactly where we need to be. Of course, the overall aim is to limit um, global heating to under two degrees Celsius uh, with best efforts to get to 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that's looking very shaky at the moment. Certainly the 1.5 degrees Celsius goal is looking very remote at the moment. And Kerry, I think, has been a bit more realistic in um, recent days about um, the prospects of getting countries to agree to uh, cuts that would um, keep us to 1.5 degrees. So if he can get some kind of um, deal done there with China uh, and prod some other countries to do more, I think um, he he will consider that success. He certainly knows this area. He's certainly very experienced in it. And Oliver, one of the world's largest polluters is China. We're now hearing that President Xi Jinping will not be attending COP, and neither are the leaders of India or Brazil. It feels like there was a time in history where American presidents could convince other world leaders to come together for important issues, which climate change certainly is. Does Biden have that power here, do you think? I feel he still does. I mean, I feel these talks have been complicated, of course, by the COVID-19 pandemic. They were meant to have taken place uh, last year. They were delayed by the UK government. She hasn't left China since the the pandemic began for any, for any reason at all. So uh, him not travelling to Glasgow, I don't think he's uh, fatal to the, the talks. Um, I think China has said that it's still willing to engage and, and do more on climate change. So um, I don't think we can be too uh, focused on 
who is exactly going to be there. It's, it's going to be the actions of countries that determine the outcome here rather than just the simple uh, optics of it. So overall, Oliver, how important is the passage of Biden's reconciliation bill for the success of COP26? I think it's important. I think it's important both from the emissions cutting perspective in that this will be the first real climate bill the America has ever had. I mean, uh, America has never passed a climate change law, which is kind of astonishing when you think of it, really. Um, uh, they've had to cobble together other kind of uh, regulations to try and push down emissions, but it hasn't hasn't been kind of coalesced like this. And I think even if Manchin gets his way and, and scales it back, it will still be a large um, bill. It will still cut emissions by a significant amount. It will help the overall effort to fight the climate crisis. I think in terms of the the talks, uh, much will come down to Biden and Kerry's selling of it. If if they can convince the world that this is very much a significant package, the US is all in, the clean energy revolution is underway, there's no going back. If they can pull that off, that will be um, very helpful indeed to the talks and very helpful to getting other countries on board. So that remains to be seen. And Oliver, we always like to ask a what else question for our show. So this week, we're going to ask you about Colin Powell, who died at the age of 84 on Monday. Powell was America's first black secretary of state and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But he has also been widely criticized for his involvement in the Iraq war. So what do you think Powell's legacy will be? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I feel it's I feel it's a complex one. He uh, he certainly was a trailblazer in, in many ways. Um, he was a very um, well-regarded general, uh, military leader, and and more latterly, towards towards the end of his life, he he spoke up against uh, Donald Trump and and what he was doing to the Republican Party uh, and the country at large. I think he also endorsed uh, Barack Obama. So he was he was obviously quite a thoughtful person who was prepared to kind of cross party lines when um, when when he thought it was necessary. Of course, the big uh, the big controversy that uh, will will probably follow him uh, will be his role in um, in, in promoting the uh, the war against Iraq, the second one, uh, and his uh, his kind of infamous appearance in front of the United Nations uh, with a vial of anthrax um, to kind of explain the threat that Saddam Hussein posed through weapons of mass destruction that, of course, never never uh, materialized, and um, many many thousands of people. Iraqis and Americans died uh, following that. So, I mean, that's um, that's obviously a, a, a very um, significant moment in his career, and uh, his critics will remember it for that. I think there is a there's a kind of complex, nuanced picture when it comes to Colin Powell. He's a uh, he was a kind of significant figure in in many respects. Oliver Millman, the Guardian's environment reporter in the U.S., thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. And that's all from me this week. Make sure to listen back to Wednesday's episode of UK Politics Weekly as Jessica Elgott looks at the tragic killing of Sir David Amos and the safety of MPs. But for now, I say goodbye. The producer was Esther Apoku-Jenny, and I'm Joni Grieve. Please stay safe out there, and thanks for listening. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? 
Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.